The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Please remain standing as I read our text and then lead us in prayer. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given such a great gift to us in the person of your son, the one who was the eternal delight of your heart and is who became our human brother, who reveals you to us so much greater than any prophet, who reconciles us to you so much greater than any merely human priest, who rules and rescues us greater than any king. Father, thank you for Jesus. Cause us to treasure him, to savor him in these moments that we spend together now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, in this little series, as you know, we're thinking about how God has provided in His Son for all that we need to fulfill the mission for which He created us to know Him, to hear Him. And so He speaks to us to be near him, and that's our focus for today. And so he reconciles us to bring us close to himself. And then in a couple weeks, three weeks I think it is, to adhere to him under his rescue and his rule. We want to think about the priestly work of Jesus today. Uh, Really what actually the preacher to the Hebrews uh, says is the very main point of the sermon. In chapter 8, verse 1, he uses a distinctive term there that really describes not just that section, but the whole sermon. The main point I'm getting at is that we have a very unique high priest. Uh, And actually leading up to that announcement in 8.1, chapters 5, 6, and 7 have described how Jesus has become high priest, why he's qualified to be high priest, though he's from the tribe of Judah, not the Levitical tribe, uh, not the family of Aaron, but uh, he is that priest promised in Psalm 110, that priest who would be a priest forever, Forever because of his indestructible life, and forever because of the Father's unbreakable oath. He's installed and never needs to be replaced. And then chapters 8, 9, and 10 talk about his priestly work, and especially how he has grounded and established and guaranteed a new covenant, promised long before through Jeremiah, a new covenant in which there's complete forgiveness of sins, no need for animal sacrifices, which 
as the preacher says, actually constitute a constant reminder of sin, not really a fundamental removal of sin. But now, once for all, he sacrificed himself for us. So he's focused right in on the cross at the core of this sermon. Ah, but you're saying to yourself, but where is it in these first four verses? If I'm claiming that this is a preview of the whole sermon, the gateway to the whole book, where is it here? It's in actually five words in our English, four words in the Greek, after making purification for sins. That's the priestly work of Jesus. Now the preacher is going to talk a lot about Jesus' death and the mission that he accomplished by his death. He's going to actually use royal and military terminology at the end of chapter 2, and we're going to come to that in several weeks when we talk about Jesus as our king. He's going to talk about Jesus as destroying the one who had the power of death and delivering the slaves. That's kingly work. But now we're focusing on the priestly work. And you could even use that Think of that in a variety of different ways. You could think about the fact that Jesus is our propitiating sacrifice. Big term, I know. The wrath-deflecting sacrifice. The one who deflects God's righteous wrath from us because instead he absorbs it on our behalf. You could speak about Jesus in terms of liberation. We could speak about his removing guilt from us. All the things that we're rescued from, guilt, condemnation, wrath, death, slavery, by the death of Christ. But the preacher also wants to see what we're rescued for by the death of Christ. We are rescued for drawing near to God. And that's why here he speaks of purification because we need to be pure in order to come into the presence of of the holy God. We have a dilemma. We're made to be near God. And in our sin, we can't stand to be near God. We can't live without him. And yet, in our sin and defilement, we can't live with him. David says in Psalm 27, One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what you were made for. To glorify and enjoy God forever with him. With him. In his presence. But then there's the problem. Isaiah sensed it when he was granted the vision of the Lord high and lifted up. You know Isaiah 6. He hears the seraphim calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies. And he's realizes he's ruined, he's finished, he's deconstructed. There's a good word for you. Uh, Because he knows his sin. Simon Peter sensed the same thing when he saw how many more fish than could possibly be gathered by skillful fishermen weighing down the nets and weighing down the boats and suddenly he falls right in his own boat before Jesus of Nazareth, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He knows how dangerous it is to be near God. But, but we're made to be near God. Where's the solution for it? M- Moses, of course, knew that dilemma up close and personal when he came down the mountain and found that the people of Israel had committed adultery with the golden calf. And God 
said first, I'll destroy them. And Moses said, you can't do that. Your name is on them. And then God said, okay, I'll send an angel to take them into the land I promised them. And we read, actually, that not only Moses, but the people, all the people. Well, let me read it to you. It's Exodus 33. When the people heard this, ESV has a good word there, I think. This disastrous word. I'm going to send an angel and bring you into my land. Disastrous word. They mourned. They wept. They didn't say, oh, well, okay. Sad, but safe. (laughs) Since the Lord said, if I go up in your midst, I'm going to destroy you because you're so stiff-necked. No, they were heartbroken. And Moses said, Lord, if you don't go with us, just kill us all here. I'm not going anywhere without you. Because how are people going to know that we are your people unless you're with us? So there's the dilemma. And all the sacrifices that were established for Israel as Moses was up on the mountain and the sanctuary there and all that That venue was all designed to point out this dilemma. God wants to be in the midst of his people. His people need him in the midst. And yet we can't survive with him up close and personal. Leading to Jesus. Leading to the one who would offer the final sacrifice. Leading to the one who would purify us so that we can serve God. That's what Hebrews says in chapter 9. Same term that we have here in 1.3 he uses in chapter 9. That Christ will purify us so that we can serve the living God. That's priestly language. That's like being in the presence of God, the way the priests in the line of Aaron could wait on God and serve in his sanctuary. We can do that now. Because Jesus has offered up himself to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's also in Hebrews 9. That's how serious sin is. Thomas Kelly had it right in his 19th century hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, when he said, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. That shows you how gravely serious sin is that that's what it takes to purify you and bring you close. It also tells you how amazingly merciful God is that he was willing to send his beloved son to offer that once-for-all sacrifice, to purify you so you can come near. And of course, Jesus not only died, but he rose again. One of the points that Hebrews makes is that Jesus is always living to intercede for us. He's continuing his high priestly work, not by offering himself as a sacrifice again and again and again. That's finished. Once for all. Ephapox. Greek vocabulary word. You don't have to memorize it in Metzger's frequency list because it doesn't happen that often, but it's an important word. Ephapox. Once for all. His sacrifice is complete. But his prayers go on and on for us. What is he praying for? We get a few hints in the New Testament about what our Savior, our High Priest, is praying for now at the Father's right hand. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that no one can lay a charge against us because Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. 
So, in fact, Jesus is continuing to, in a sense, remind the Father of the Father's love in sending the Son to die for us, and that his blood is the complete ground for our forgiveness, even as his obedience is the complete ground for our approval before the Father. So he's praying for that. And then maybe John 17, which... uh, we have in recent death centuries called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Maybe that gives us a clue as to what he's praying for as well. John 17, the apostles overhear him praying for our unity, that they may be one even as he and the Father are one, that the world might know that the Father has sent him. Praying for our protection. Father, keep them from the evil one. Praying that we might stay safe in God's truth and one in God's love. He's praying for us. And because he's praying for us and because he died for us and because that, well, that verbal form here, that aorist participle, having made, uh, really does speak of a completed once-for-all act. He's completed that purification for sins so we can draw near. That wonderful, wonderful theme that Hebrews speaks of in chapter 4. We draw near in our prayers because we have a high priest who has been tested at every point as we are without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for timely help. Help in the nick of time. Come to him. Pray to him with confidence Because he's made purification for your sins. Come to him, not like kids bringing their wish list to Santa at the mall to hop on his lap and give him only, here's what I need, here's what I need. Hebrews could have said, write God a letter if that's all that Hebrews had in mind. But no, he says, come to him. Or don't just tweet him. Or don't just email him. Come to him. Enjoy his presence. Be with him because that is what you need. Drawing near to God. And it's not just solo, you know. I mean, it is about our personal prayer life. Coming to him. That's the invitation for us. Uh, But drawing near also is what we do together in worship. In Hebrews 10, the preacher says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way he opened for us through his Flesh, which is the curtain, in effect, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us not neglect meeting together. Let us encourage one another. You see, it's corporate. It's corporate worship. If we were tempted to hear that text in chapter 4 as only individualistic, chapter 10 makes it clear it's all about our being together in worship. It's all about our kind of saying to one another what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who has refuge in him. Draw near because your high priest has made purification for your sins. Now, these are busy days. I know they're busy days, right? Papers are due in four weeks. Yikes, or less. Exams are coming. There's work. There's church. There's family. There's all these things. These are such busy days 
you cannot afford to be too busy to draw near to God in prayer. You desperately need to draw near him in prayer. You cannot afford not to take time to be in the presence of your God who brings you and gives you timely help in his presence by his Holy Spirit. Remember that. Remember the privilege. Remember the priest who paid the price to give you that privilege, his own lifeblood, and who now intercedes for us, who has purified you so you can come close to God. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.